Reader's Digest presents Hollywood 360 with your host, Carl Amari. Who's that strange-looking man, thank you? That's Carl. I met him at the laundry man. Sam Slade Detective Agency. Sam, sweetheart. I don't know what to do, Rabbi. Every night he listens to the radio. I can't keep him away. The Lone Ranger, uh, the Shadow, the Master Avenger. Uh, this is not good. It tends to induce bad values, false dreams, lazy habits. Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents all things entertainment, including showbiz news, classic radio shows, movie reviews, trivia contests, and celebrity interviews. This hour on Hollywood 360, it's a good mystery on the Hall of Fantasy, but it's time now for a quarter-hour episode of the Bill Stern Sports Newsreel, starring Bill Stern with his special guest, Jack Benny, from December 28, 1945. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bill Stern broadcasting from Hollywood, California tonight. And our guest here in Hollywood is one of America's most famous radio stars, Jack Benny. But first, real one. He's been a champ longer than any man in sports history, so let's salute the great king of the billiard cue, Willie Hoppy. Okay, Bill, and here's the way Willie Hoppy salutes Colgate Brushless, the shave cream of champions. He writes, I'm a Colgate Brushless booster from way back. Why, I just wouldn't feel informed if I didn't have Colgate Brushless to keep my somewhat tender face from being irritated. No kidding, Bill. Colgate Brushless lets me shave smooth as a cue ball, but leaves my face feeling refreshed. I guess that's because it doesn't dry out on my skin. Signed, Willie Hoppy. Now, isn't that a sweet picture of a shave with Colgate Brushless, the shave cream of champions? A light, fluffy cream that keeps moist clear through your shave, takes the fight out of wiry whiskers so your razor can shear them off close and clean. You can chalk up no snag, no pull, no after irritation to this great brushless shave cream. And because it's not gummy or greasy, it rinses off your face and your razor in a flash. What's more, if Colgate Brushless doesn't convince you completely... Just send the top of the carton to me, Bill Stern, Kara Colgate, Jersey City, Zone 2, New Jersey, and I'll see that you get double your money back. Save money. by the big nine-ounce economy-sized jar tonight. Real two. Colgate's camera close-up of Jack Benny. Tonight we're broadcasting from Hollywood, and he's one of the most famous stars in Hollywood. His radio program on Sunday evenings is one of America's most famous radio shows, and here he is in person, Jack Benny. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking, and Bill, I want to thank you for inviting me on your program. Well, you're welcome, Jack, uh, but why did you have to pick on, I mean, why did you want to be on my program? Well, it was a natural thing, Bill. You see, uh, I've always been very active in sports. You? Certainly. Football, uh, baseball, boxing, tennis, basketball, track, all those things. Of course, as much as I enjoy them, I've had to give them up. I'm almost 37, you know. Now, wait a minute, Jack. I'm 37. Look at me. Well, maybe you didn't take care of yourself. (laughs) Maybe, but getting back to sports, have you given up all forms of sports, Jack? Well, no, no, Bill, not everything. There's still one sport I indulge in quite frequently. Really? What is it? Well, I like to stand on the corner of Sunset and Vine and go... (laughs) (laughs) Jack, that's not bad. Have you picked up anything? Yes, two poodles, three St. Bernards, and a traffic cop. (laughs) But seriously, Bill, I do swim a little. You know, I have a pool in my backyard. Well, in this weather, who hasn't? Anyway, Jack... been here a few days. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're still interested in sports, because a few weeks ago you had Joe Lewis on your program. Uh, Yes, Bill, I did have Lewis on my show, and he gave me some pointers on boxing. Yes, Joe told me about that. He also mentioned that you had beautiful muscles. 
Well, yes, yes, I hate to say so, but I have. Come here, Jack. Let me feel those muscles. Well, I wish you'd let me know earlier. I would have warned them to the broadcast. <laughs> well, next time, I'll call you beforehand. You know, Jack, we've been kidding around, but I want you to know that I've talked to a lot of servicemen who've come back from overseas, and they all tell me what a wonderful job you did entertaining our troops. Uh, thanks, Bill, and as we come to the close of this year, the first peacetime new year in five years, I, like everyone else, of course, am thankful for the victory and the peace. I'm also grateful that I was one of those asked to serve in the field of entertainment during the war. I know the theatrical world will always be ready, but I hope it won't be necessary again. You're so right, Jack Benny. But don't go away, Jack. I want you back later in this program. And ladies and gentlemen, that speech by Jack Benny reminds me that this year is coming to a close. So tonight, let's look back and review the outstanding sports stories of this year. Memories of stories that made this year's sports history. Let's begin with... The profile of Jack Shevney. Jack Shevney was one of the greatest football players to ever play for Notre Dame. But after graduation, Jack Shevney left Notre Dame to become the head football coach at the University of Texas. And at Texas, Jack Shevney coached a Texas team that beat his former alma mater, Notre Dame. They even gave Jack Shevney a gold fountain pen, a gold fountain pen that bore an inscription, an inscription which read, presented to Jack Shevney, a Notre Dame man who beat Notre Dame. When this war broke out, Jack Shevney joined the Marines. And as a Marine in this war, he gave his life at Iwo Jima when a Japanese bullet killed him. At the end of this story took place this year aboard the USS Missouri, when the Japanese officials came aboard to sign the official surrender document ending this war. For just as the Japanese official was about to sign Japan's surrender, someone noticed the fountain pen that this Japanese official was using. That fountain pen was Jack Shevney's gold fountain pen, stolen from his dead body at Iwo Jima, and it still bore the inscription to Jack Shevney, a Notre Dame man who beat Notre Dame. <laughs> one great sports memory of 1945, but there were others. Do you remember the story we called? The portrait of a boxing team. This was the story of a boxing team, a great boxing team. They were champions, except that they were dirty fighters. They fought dirty. They used foul tactics. Anything to win a fight. In fact, they became so dirty that in one fight, they killed a man. And then they were charged with murder. But on the day that they were found guilty... The judge allowed them to go free. This was because of political influence, for you see, this all happened back in Germany. And those dirty prize fighters were the first Nazi party headed by Adolf Hitler. But there were other great memories of sports events that reached the climax this past year. For instance, do you remember... Profile of a Frenchman. This was the story of a Frenchman who gave one of the world's most lavish dinner parties. This huge dinner party cost this Frenchman over $100,000. And the guest of honor at this Frenchman's dinner party was a horse. A horse named Avion. A great racehorse that this Frenchman had just bought. Maybe you'd like to know who this Frenchman was. He was the former dictator of France, Pierre Laval. 
Pierre Laval, who was killed this past year. Killed as a traitor to France. And after he was killed, they carted his body away to the burial grounds. And the horse that pulled his body to his grave was the very same horse for which he'd once given the world's most expensive dinner party. Now the memories. The memories of this year's sports stories are coming back. Memories that on this last broadcast of this year we must remember. Such as... The portrait of a love story. This was the story of a girl named Lisa. And a boy named Joseph. They lived in Vienna, and they were very, very much in love. Joseph was a soccer player, a good soccer player, and Lisa began to go with him to the soccer games. She became the official scorer of his Viennese soccer team. The years passed after that, and Adolf Hitler came into power. It was then that Lisa was ordered arrested, but all they found on her was a notebook, a notebook which she said was filled with official soccer scores. And because she was the official soccer scorer, the Germans let her go. Let her go to bring her notebook back to the Allies. For in that notebook, there weren't really soccer scores. No, those figures were the formula which gave the United States the atomic bomb. We've just about finished reviewing the best sports memories that took place in this passing year, but we must not forget a story that we call... The Profile of a Rivalry. This was the story of a rivalry between two men. One was nicknamed Ben, the other was nicknamed Matty. These two were rivals in skiing, in racing, in boxing. Always it was Matty who beat Ben. This infuriated Ben so much that he vowed that somehow he'd get Matty, and he did get him. But one day, Ben caused Matty to lose his life. For Ben had Matty murdered. However, when Matty died, Matty's son swore that someday he'd avenge his father's death. And this year, he did. For he killed Ben, just as Ben had killed his father. And so this year saw the end of a rivalry between these two men. A rivalry that began in sports and ended in the death for both men. Maybe you'd like to know who these two men were. Matty was the famous Italian socialist leader, Giacomo Mattiotti. While Ben... Ben was the dictator of Italy, Benito Mussolini. It was Mussolini who murdered Mattiotti, only in turn to be murdered by Mattiotti's son. There you have it. That's Bill Stern's Sports Newsreel with guest Jack Benny. Stick around. We'll be right back. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Brought to you by Reader's Digest. The Hall of Fantasy came to Radio 1946. It was written or adapted by Robert Olson and directed by Richard Thorne. The stories were mostly murder mysteries with traditional endings. In 1947, this first series ended with Thorne and Grayson as they went their separate ways. But the Hall of Fantasy was revived, Lisa, in 1949, when by pure coincidence, Thorne and Grayson found themselves working together at WGN in Chicago. And in 1952, the Hall of Fantasy went nationwide over the mutual network with Thorne writing original stories and adapting classics of literature like The Telltale Heart. We have an episode now for you called The Judge's House. It's from an early run of the Hall of Fantasy from April 3rd, 1947. It stars Richard Thorne, who also wrote this, and it was sustained over CBS. So let's tune this in. Part one now of the Hall of Fantasy. Ladies and gentlemen, the Granite Furniture Company with stores in Sugar House, Murray, and Provo presents... 
the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall ascend to the world of the unknown and forbidden, down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of The Judge's House. The Granite Furniture Company brings you the Hall of Fantasy. Listen now to original tales of the imagination and some of the classics of the supernatural as we take you down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy to the mysterious realms of the unknown. These are stories of eerie and fantastic thrills brought to you by your friends at the Granite Furniture Stores. And now for tonight's story, a radio adaptation by Bob Olson of Bram Stoker's story entitled... The Judge's House. Justice. Peace. How can we be certain of either when hatred burns unchecked, even beyond the grave? I am Malcolm Lane. This is my story. I want to tell it to you while there is still time. I watched them carry the parcels into the judge's house. Mrs. Whittam, whom I had engaged as my housekeeper for the next three months, was directing the activity... She was an amusing little character. I had to promise that she wouldn't have to stay in the house after it began to get dark. The upholsterer's man was coming up the pathway with a cart and a new bed. Mrs. Whittam had insisted on this one new piece of furniture because, as she put it... A bed that just hasn't been aired for 50 years is not fit for young bodies to lie on. And she was right, of course. But my head was too full of plans for study to worry about such details as my living quarters. As for the tales about the harsh old judge whose house this had once been, I had only a mild enthusiasm. He must have been quite a character, though, to make an entire village fear him and his house even 50 years after his death. Mrs. Whittam was positive there was something about the old place, though she nor anyone else quite knew what it was. The consensus of opinion, however, was that they would not take all the money in Drinwater's bank to spend an hour here alone. But Mrs. Whittam startled me with a very rational statement. The place is full of rats. And rats is bogeys. Just the same as bogeys is rats. That explanation suited me very well. For, as I said once before, my head was full of plans to study. Examinations were coming up soon, and I had paid three months' rent in this old house so that I would be assured of peace and quiet while I prepared for them. The only mysteries I'm interested in, Mrs. Whittam, are those of harmonical progression and elliptical functions... They're mystery enough for me. Not that you won't find company here, Mr. Lane. I've already cleaned all of 50 years of dust from everything. Oh, but that waistcoat in this room must be hundreds of years old. And you'll find creaky doors aplenty and loose flats all over, ready to flap in the wind. And bureau drawers that stick and then fall down in the middle of the night. And uh, don't forget the rats. No, Mr. Lane. Don't forget the rats. The workmen were all gone, and but for the busy little figure of the housekeeper, I was alone. It was for this that I had taken the tiresome ride to Benchurch, the remote little town that had all the attractions of a desert. It was drawing close to evening as Mrs. Whittam was unpacking the last hamper, and I could see that she was beginning to cast worried glances about as the shadows began to creep into the corners of this huge dining room I'd chosen for my living quarters. Oh, you may go now, Mrs. Whittam. It's getting dark in here, and I'm sure you're anxious to get home. You've done well with this old room. I shall reward you with complete possession of this house for the last two months of my tenancy. Three or four weeks will be all I'll need, 
And I'd hate to see that rent money go to waste. Thank you kindly, sir, but I wouldn't stay here I know, for all the money in Drinkwater's bank. (laughs) I'm really grateful, for I do want to be alone. And if you were not so opposed to it, I might be tempted to uh, accept your company. Ah, you young gentlemen. You fear nothing. And I'm certain you'll get all the solitude you need here. Uh, Good night, sir. You'll find your supper beneath the cloth. Good night, Mrs. Whittem. Oh, yes, this was comfort. After I'd finished my supper, I cleared the great oak table and got my books out. Then when I'd put fresh wood in the fire and trimmed the lamp, I sat down to a spell of hard work. I hardly looked up from my books until nearly eleven o'clock, at which time I threw some more wood in the fire and indulged in one of my most deeply ingrained habits, that of tea drinking. I thoroughly enjoyed tea and drank it this night with a sense of of real enjoyment. Soon the new wood I had thrown in the fire began to crackle and the new flame threw quaint shadows about the great old room. And as I sat there sipping my tea, I reveled in the complete sense of of isolation. Then for the first time, I noticed the noise of the rats. Strange, I hadn't heard them before. Maybe they're just getting used to me. But they're bold enough now. How busy they were. What strange noises they made. Up and down the old wainscot they went. And over the ceiling and over the floor, racing and gnawing and scratching. There were so many of them that I'd have sworn that if they set their strength to it, they could have carried the house away. I had a smile when I recalled the words of Mrs. Whittem. Rats is bogies and bogies is rats. <laughs> the stimulation of the tea gave me a sense of security. and I grabbed the lamp to take a good look around the room. Strange why such a beautiful old place should have been so neglected for all this time. The carving in the oak panels of the wainscot was fine indeed, and that around the doors and windows was of rare merit. I saw some old pictures on the wall next to the fireplace, but they were coated so thick with dust that I couldn't distinguish any of their details, even though I did hold the lamp high above my head. Now and then I would get a quick start as the light fell upon the old walls and disclosed the glittering eyes of a rat as he would stick his face out of a hole or a crack. In an instant, it would disappear with a squeak and a scamper. Another object that struck me as odd was the rope of a great alarm bell that hung in the corner of the room on the right-hand side of the fireplace. After my inspection tour, I sat in a high-backed chair that was near the fireplace and sipped from another cup of tea. For a while, I thought the noise of the rats would drive me to distraction, but that eased off and I became accustomed to it, the same as a person gets used to the roar of water when he camps beside a stream. Soon I was so engrossed in a mathematical problem that I had forgotten everything else in the world. But since the solution to the problem came stubbornly, I looked up and was surprised to see that the fire had fallen to a dull red glow. There was a sudden quiet, the strange hush that comes in the hour before dawn. I became aware for the first time that the noise of the rats had ceased. When it had happened, I couldn't remember. But something instinctive told me that it had been in the last few moments... And that it had been sudden. I looked up. And what I saw... What I saw was a most amazing thing. For there on the high-backed chair sat an enormous rat staring at me through deadly, malignant eyes. I tried to frighten it away, but it didn't stir. I made a motion as if to throw something at it. But it only bared its teeth angrily, and its cruel eyes shone all the more bright. I'd grabbed the poker from the hearth and was going to kill the creature... But before I could reach it, that enormous rat jumped to the floor. And with a squeak that sounded like a consummate hit of the whole world, scampered up the rope of the alarm bell 
disappeared in the darkness. Then, as if by a signal, the noise of the other rats started all over again. By this time, I gave up working my problem, bartered it for some much-needed sleep. It was Mrs. Whittam who woke me as she came in to make up the room. You're much paler this morning, Mr. Lane. I am. You shouldn't stay up so late with your work. It isn't good for you. But tell me, how did you spend the night? I was certainly glad to see you. Alive? <laughs> oh, yes, that was quite all right, Mrs. Whittam. The something didn't worry me too much. But the rats certainly held themselves a camp meeting. There was one that sat up in that chair by the fireplace and wouldn't go away until I chased him with a poker. It was the biggest old devil I've ever seen. Old devil? Maybe it was the old devil. <laughs> I only Never that... you mind, sir. Many a true word is spoken in jest. Well, pardon me, Mrs. Whittam. I didn't mean to be rude. But the thought of the old devil himself sitting in that chair last night struck me as being rather funny. And it's a good thing you can laugh. But all the same, if I were to spend the night here tonight, oh, heaven forbid, I'd make sure I was ready for him. Mmm, yes, Lisa Wolf, the Hall of Fantasy, good mystery, going back to April 3rd, 1947, a show called The Judge's House, starring Richard Thorne, who also wrote this story. And we'll get back to the Hall of Fantasy in just a few minutes here on the Hollywood 360 Radio Network uh, across the country on about 100 radio stations. So hello, coast-to-coast listeners. Thanks for tuning us in each week here. And uh, we play classic radio shows for you, all your favorites, right here on this radio station. And our website is hollywood360radio.com. We have a podcast there. So this program will be available. We put the new show up every Monday, right, Lisa? So this week's show that we're doing right now will be up and playing on Monday at our website, hollywood360radio.com. It's right on the homepage. You don't have to pay anything for it. It's absolutely free. And we also add a bonus hour of classic radio on there. So you get not only the Hollywood 360 show, but a full more hour of classic radio. Not bad, right? Right. I also wanted to mention a lot of people uh, send us messages and emails. They want to know what our schedule is for the week. Mm. Again, they can find that on our website or they can go to our Facebook page, which is Hollywood 360 Radio. So right. they don't have to they don't have to ask, they can just check. Yeah, just go right to our website and it says this week on Hollywood three sixty. Click that and uh there then it is. we'll find what this right. week is on Hollywood three sixty. Yeah. And uh and Lisa does all that. She does do. all of it. she does everything. Me, I do me everything. and Mike Estella, we do nothing. No, I just do it all. We just show up here. In fact, we're not even here. It's <laughs> Lisa doing all three of our voices. <laughs> if you'd stop all the talking, engineering. I'd have a chance. She does Mike's job. <laughs> she runs back and forth from the studio into the uh production booth. I don't even need you. She does she uh imitates my voice. Imitates that I cannot do. And then uh yeah, it's just Lisa. Just me. That's it. Pretty much. All Sometimes right. it feels that way though, doesn't it? So uh, now Lisa's going to play this clip from a Ben Stiller movie. <laughs> right. Right? 1998 comedy romance. Sheila, honey, uh, you got to come here. You got you, you got to see this. What? What? Don't. Don't. Come in here, don't. You, don't. Don't worry. She's a dental hygienist. She'll know exactly what to do. Hi, Ted. Hi, Mrs. Jensen. How are you? All right. If you That's know funny, what funny movie clip. this is. Ben Stiller stars in it, 1998 comedy romance. Sheila, honey, uh, 
you got to come here. You got you, you got to see this. Don't 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 worry. She's a dental hygienist. She'll know exactly what to do. Hi, Ted. Hey, Mr. Jensen. How are you? All right. Give us a call right now. Win some fabulous prizes. Toll free eight five five three sixty. H360, the H is a 4, 855 H360, the H is a 4. Call right now. We'll be right back. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360, brought to you by Reader's Digest. All right, Lisa Wolf, uh, before the break, we played this movie clip. Sheila, honey, uh, you got to come here. You got you got to see this. What? What? Don't, 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 don't. Don't worry. She's a dental hygienist. She'll know exactly what to do. Hi, Ted. All right. That is a 1998 comedy drama starring Ben Stiller. And Jim from Galveston knows the answer. What's up, Jim? How are you? Oh, I'm doing good, Carl. How are you? Excellent. What's the name of this movie? That would be There's Something About Mary. Yes, you're absolutely right, Jim. Great job. My crabby brother will send you some prizes, okay? Awesome, thank you. Thank you, buddy. All right, uh, Jim, he knew it, Lisa Wolf. I can picture the scene. It's Galveston, just... oh, Galveston. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Is that maybe all you I'll know? Get a, maybe I'll get a singing contract. Is that all you know? Just... I'm not, I mean, we're on 100 radio stations. A maybe some contract? record producer will hear me. Galveston, oh, Galveston. Keep going. Can you make me into a singer? Me? Somebody out oh. there. Can you keep going? Let's hear no, a little more. No, I don't know the rest of it. Oh, that's a Is problem. Is there any more? There's more. I thought you just say it over and over throughout the I whole song. I think there has to be more. To Galveston, it. oh Galveston. You sound like Johnny Cash. How is that? Pretty same. good. Exactly the same. I, I would love a singing contract, a record I bet contract. You would. I would just, I would nail it. Right. You know. Yeah, you're if, good at that. If they gave me an opportunity mm-hmm. and did a uh, auto tune on oh, me, yeah. I would sound great auto tuned. You, you know, yeah. Right? Yeah, Johnny Cash, Adele, Carla Mari, it's all the same. I mean, right, right in the same. I would be up there with uh, Springsteen. Yeah. and Springsteen. And also uh, Elton John. Oh, yes. Right? Definitely. And be up there. And, and maybe I'd get uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, yes. Win a Grammy that would for be my great. voice. Yes. So, I mean, these are, you know, this America. Are you awake? It's America. <laughs> are you sleeping? No, this is America. <laughs> the alarm goes off. Oh, wait, what happened? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I often dream about my dreams, you know? Uh-huh. I, I dream about my dreams and my goals. Yeah, we all my... we all have dreams and goals, and it's very important you know? to have and to dream. And so every once in a while I have a dream that I'm, like, up there on stage, like Elvis, and I'm singing. And, well, you know, that's good. You and people are dreams. clapping and cheering, and they're it's very healthy. throwing the, money at me. The difference is we just know what's a and dream and what's reality They're throwing here. their hotel keys at me. Amongst other things. And their money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like uh, like like Elvis used to do. Right. Oh, what a life, huh? Yeah, you know, must be. Oh boy. Anyway, I digress. Yes. So this was Ben Stiller, Cameron Diaz, Matt Dillon, who's one of my favorites, Chris Elliott, in the scene where Pat Healy, Matt Dillon, says to Mary, "I just wish they made movies like they used to make. You know, classics like that uh, Karate Kid movie." Well, of course, Matt Dillon starred with Ralph Macchio, who played the pro- uh, protagonist of the Karate Kid in the 1984 film, The Outsiders. Yes, so that's familiar. kind of a, the Fairley Brothers <laughs> did true. this movie. Yeah, it's funny. So funny. One of the funniest movies of all time. There's something about Mary. 
And uh, I got to tell you, Cameron Diaz in that movie. Oh, she is just cute as a button, she's right? She's terrific. I My like gosh. her. I'm a big fan. All right. Let's get back now to the Hall of Fantasy. That night, the rats put on an earlier show. For their scamperings began almost as soon as I'd finished with my supper. The cursed creatures seemed to get on my nerves, and I sat there and popped my pipe. And they squealed and scratched and gnawed. They seemed to grow bolder by the minute. By now they were coming to the chinks and cracks in the wall until their eyes shone like miniature lamps when the firelight struck them. They'd even make bold sallies under the floor, and I'd have to frighten them away by pounding on the table with my fist. That was how I passed the early part of that night. Despite it, I became more and more engrossed in my studies. And then, a strange sensation coursed through me. For there it was again. Instinctively, I grabbed the handiest object I could find, a book, and flung it at the baleful little beast. But the book was too hastily aimed, and the huge rat didn't stir. So once again, I went into the poker routine. And once again, it fed up the rope of the alarm bell. I tried to follow its flight more closely this time, but before I could see where it went, it had been swallowed up in the shadows. And just as it happened last night, as soon as the big rat had gone, the others resumed their activity. I looked at my watch and found that it was very close to midnight. I built up the fire and brewed myself a pot of tea. I tried to get back to my work, but I, I suddenly became curious to know where the rat had disappeared to. For I was certain that tomorrow I would most likely get myself a rat trap. I gathered all my books about me and put them in a handy position for throwing. Then I took the rope of the alarm bell and placed the end of it upon the table underneath the lamp, where there would be plenty of light on it. As I picked up the rope, I was amazed how pliable and strong it was. Ideal, I thought, for hanging a man. Soon my preparations were complete. Well, this time, my friend, I intend to learn more about you. Once again, I was hard at my work, and the noise of the rats was forgotten. But just as suddenly as before, I was aroused by that same sense of startling silence. I was conscious of a slight movement in the rope at my elbow. Without stirring, I, I checked to see if my pile of books was in easy reach. It was. I cast my glance at the rope just in time to see the huge rat drop from it to the back of the high oak chair. I grabbed a book and hurled it. With amazing agility, the rat sprang aside and dodged it. I threw a second and a third, but each time it managed to dodge my battery. It was almost funny, almost. Finally, when I was down to the last book, I took careful aim, and as I did this, the rat squeaked and seemed afraid. I let the book fly. It struck the rat with a resounding thud. It gave out a shrill, terrified shriek, and running up the back of the chair made a desperate leap. And with the speed of a bolt of lightning, ran up the bell rope. The lamp rocked with a strain, but it didn't topple. Then I saw the rat leap to a molding and disappear through the hole in one of the big pictures that hung on the wall. I made a mental note of the exact spot. Third picture from the fireplace, huh? I'll remember that and have Mrs. Whittem scrub it clean the first thing tomorrow morning. I began to pick up the books I had thrown at the rat. As I did so... I took a good look at their titles. Conic sections. Mr. Rat doesn't seem to mind that. Neither did he this one on cycloidal oscillations. And this one on thermodynamics, he dodged very neatly. Oh. Here's the book that got him. As I looked at the title of the book that had finally hit the huge rat, I could 
feel a pallor spread across my face. For the title of that book was The Holy Bible. Mr. Lane, this is Dr. Thornhill. Dr. Thornhill, are you ill, Mrs. Whittem? Your pardon, Mr. Lane, but uh, Mrs. Whittem wanted me to come up here and have a talk with you. A talk? Well, in that case, let me prepare some tea for you. Oh, please don't. Uh, That's one of the things I came to talk to you about. Mrs. Whittem thinks you drink more strong tea than is good for you. She tells me also that you put in quite long hours at your studies. Mrs. Whittem, I engaged you as a housekeeper, not as a guardian. I... Oh, please, Mr. Lane, I didn't As a matter of fact, Lane, she didn't uh, mean to have me talk to you at all. That was my idea. I see. Well, now that you're here, what do you want me to do? Leave this house. Well, even if I could see the reason for it, I doubt if I would. But as for the tea and late hours, I might be able to give them up. Would it make you feel any better, Mrs. Whittem, if I promised not to study after uh, one o'clock tonight? Yes, if you promise. Mm, Then I promise. I advise you, not as a total stranger to your problem, Mr. Lane... I was a student once myself, you know. Of course. Shall we shake on a doctor? Uh, fine. Now, if you will, I wish you'd uh, tell me what you've noticed in this house. Well, it's just as I've told Mrs. Whittem. I'd be working late, and I'd suddenly be... And when I looked to see which book it was that had struck the rat, the devil, as Mrs. Whittem calls it, I was amazed to find that it was the Holy Bible. <gasps> there now. Please, Mrs. Whittem, you're not hurt. Uh, now, Mr. Lane, you say the rat always went up the rope of that alarm bell? Always. I uh, suppose you know what that rope is? No, I... It's the very rope the hangman used to execute the victims of the judge's hatred. Oh, no. Now, Mrs. Whittem, there's no reason to get upset about this, really. Uh, doctor, you shouldn't put such horrible thoughts in poor Mr. Lane's mind. He has enough to unseat him already. I, uh, I did it for a definite purpose. Mr. Lane, I want you to fix your attention on that rope... Now, I know you're sound of mind and body, but hard work and long hours and this suggestion of the devil, especially in this lonely old house, can do things to the mind. Now, I don't mean this is any offense, but if you should find yourself having, well, hallucinations or some unexplainable fright, I want you to pull that rope. It'll give us some kind of a warning in the village. We might be able to be of some help. Well, thank you, doctor. I'll do that. (laughs) I may get stuck with a problem. Mm, Fine. Goodbye, Mr. Lane, and, uh, well, I wouldn't be surprised if Benchurch hears the alarm bell from the judge's house tonight. I didn't quite share the doctor's views, but just the same, I caught myself staring at the bell rope. The more I stared, the more restless I became, and every now and then my mind would conjure up the vision of some wretched victim dangling from the end of it. But that line of thinking would have me out of my mind in a hurry. Mrs. Whittem had made the place neat and homey. I wandered over to one of the big windows and flung it open. I was surprised to find that a sharp wind had come up, a very cold wind for April. It was more than a sharp wind, really, but it was carrying a storm. Little drops of rain began to pelt me in the face until soon it became a thing of fury. I bolted the shutters and built up the fire with some fresh wood. I was uncomfortable and was only vaguely conscious of the reason. Suddenly I knew. The rats were quiet tonight. It gave me a slight case of the jitters and... I instinctively took a hasty glance at the bell rope. The rope was quite still. I wanted a hot cup of tea, but remembering my promise to Mrs. Widdham, I desisted. Instead, I sat at the great oak table and opened my books. Soon I had started a problem, and the noise of the rats began. 
For the first time since I'd taken up residence in the church's house, I was glad to hear those rats. I had worked for an hour or so and suddenly became conscious of the furious storm outside. I was thankful that I didn't have to be out of it. The faint movement of the bell rope impelled me to walk over to it and take it in my hand. I saw nothing. It had only been the wind, and the rope was rising and falling gently with each new gust of air, which caused the bell to sway back and forth a little. That rope had a deadly fascination to it. I wondered why the judge wanted such a grisly memento in his house. The thought of it sent a chill through me. Or was it a thought? Didn't I sense a tremor along that rope? I couldn't be sure, but at that moment I remembered the picture. I walked over to the table, picked up the lamp, and approached the spot where I'd seen the picture the night before. I counted out the pictures until I came to the third one from the fireplace. Even before I raised the lamp, I could see that Mrs. Whittam had washed it clean as I had told her to do. Then what I saw... What I saw gave me such a start that I nearly dropped the lamp. My knees almost gave way beneath me, and I was conscious of huge beads of perspiration that were forming on my forehead. Just looking at it made me tremble like an aspen leaf. The picture seemed fairly to leap out at me. For there, dressed in his scarlet and ermine robes with a judge... With his merciless, evil face, his sensual mouth, and a nose that was shaped like the beak of a bird of prey. His face had a cadaverous coloring. It was a ghastly picture. But it was the eyes that really made me go cold. For those eyes were... And heaven help me if I'm going mad. Those eyes were the exact duplicate of the evil eyes of the great rat. The picture had been painted in this very room. I began to compare the two, and as my eyes swept the room, they were suddenly riveted to the judge's chair. For there, with a rope hanging behind it, sat the huge rat with the judge's eyes, and the hatefulness was now intensified with a fiendish leer. Never did the wind howl so. This had to stop. I wanted some tea, but I didn't take any. The doctor had been quite right. It must have been getting drawn pretty taut. Strange, too, because I never was in better health. Well, no tea. We'll substitute some brandy. Let's see now. I had a stiff glass of the brandy and went back to work. The rats were at it again, and I was glad to hear them, for they had become a sort of symbol of normalcy. The storm raised such a fury that I was unaware of anything else. But once, during a sharp, silent lull, I heard another sound, a faint squeaking noise. I listened for it again and soon detected it was coming from the corner of the room where the bell rope hung. At first I thought it was just the motion of the rope in the storm, but I looked up and saw something in the dim light that made me all the more positive that I was going mad. For there was the great rat, clinging to the rope and gnawing at it. I could see the lighter coloring where the bare strands were exposed. Just then the rat finished the job and the rope fell to the floor with a thud. For a moment the huge rat just hung there like a tassel. It was then that I realized what had happened. My only contact with the village was now gone. I don't know why, but I rushed to the lamp on the table, snatched off the shade, and ran over to the picture of the judge. A chill of horror went through me. But I think I must have expected what I saw. It seemed more like a confirmation than a shock. For there in the center of the picture was a great patch of brown canvas, as clean and as fresh as the day it had been drawn over the frame... And where the portrait of the judge himself had been, there was nothing. I heard a sound behind me. When I turned around, I really got the palsy. I suddenly became incapable of movement. I could hardly think. I had been prepared to see most anything, but what was there? 
For there in the judge's high-backed chair, with his black cap in his hand, his ermine robes fixed about him with a smile of triumph, twisting his cruel mouth, was the judge himself. As the clock struck the hour, it seemed to beat the blood right out of my heart. At the twelfth stroke, the judge placed the black cap on his head and walked deliberately over the place where the piece of bell rope lay in a heap on the floor. He picked it up and drew it through his hands as one would a valuable fur pelt. Then he began to knot one end, fashioning it into a noose. He tightened it and tested it with his foot. All this time, he never took his horribly cruel eyes from my face. I began to feel trapped. For some reason, I could barely move. I could only watch as he started to move along the table toward me. And then with a quick move, and he, he threw the noose at me, as if to ensnare me in it. It missed. He raised it again, never once taking those hateful eyes from my face. Once more, the noose came, flying toward me. Once more, with some last ounce of strength, I dodged it. The room seemed flooded with light. The lamp had suddenly flared up high. I looked about the room and was astonished to see the shiny little eyes of the rats as they peered out the cracks and chinks in the wall. I looked up at the bell rope, my lost and last hope of warning the village. It was covered with the little fellows. Funny thing, but those rats were the only thing that gave me even the slightest sense of comfort. For as the rats clambered along the bell rope, the bell itself began to sway, and I heard a tiny sound, yes, very tiny, as the clamper touched the bell itself. It was only a whisper of a sound, but it would grow louder in time. Or would it? At this sound, the judge looked up, and a scowl of terrible anger came to his face. His eyes were like red-hot coals, and he stamped his foot so that the house seemed to shake. The rats kept running up and down the rope as if they were conscious that it was a race against time. Now the judge was approaching me with a noose in his hand. As he came closer, there seemed to be something paralyzing in his presence, and I stood as rigid as a corpse. Suddenly, I, I felt the judge's icy fingers against the skin of my throat. He was adjusting the rope about my neck. Then he picked me up and stood me on the high oak chair and put his hand on the swaying end of the bell rope. As he raised his hand, I was conscious of my little rat friends fleeing through the hole in the ceiling. They were my last hope. I stood there on the chair and couldn't move a muscle. Now that my last hope seemed gone... I wanted the judge to hurry and get it over with. Soon he tied the end of the rope just above my neck, to the dangling end of the bell rope. Then he jumped down to the floor and looked at me with those eyes that hated me so. The smile of diabolical triumph seemed to wreathe him in horror. I began to wonder about hangings. I wondered how long it would take, whether the doctor in the village could possibly reach me in time. For I knew that I would soon be sounding the alarm bell. I even wondered what kind of a shadow I'd cast on the wall as I dangled from the end of the rope in this grotesque candlelight. But I didn't wonder for long. Because suddenly, the judge grabbed the chair in which I was standing when the sudden movement jerked it out from under me. So runs the tale of The Judge's House. Remember to join us next week at the same time for another journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy.
Tonight's program was adapted from the story by Bram Stoker, entitled The Judge's House. Heard in tonight's program were Dick Thorne as Malcolm Lane, Beth Calder as Mrs. Woodham, and Mel Wyman as a doctor. Musical background was provided by Earl Donaldson. The technical supervisor was Nephi Sorensen. This program was written by Bob Olson and produced and directed by Richard Thorne. Remember, be with us again next Sunday night on call at 8.30 p.m. when the Granite Furniture Stores in Sugar House, Murray, and Provo will take you on another journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. Good mystery there. The Hall of Fantasy, April 3rd, 1947. The Judge's House, starring Richard Thorne. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll be right back. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari, brought to you by Reader's Digest. Well, Lisa Wolf, that's a wrap. It's a wrap. Right? But we'll be back. Yeah, we'll be back next week with more Hollywood 360. Next week, Fibber, McGee, and Molly, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Tales of the Texas Rangers, and Escape from my co-host Lisa Wolf, executive producer Mike Costella. National movie critic Sarah Adamson, Vince and Chris Lombardi, my crabby brother Vince Amari, Adam West, and me, Carl Amari. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hollywood 360 with host Carl Amari is brought to you by Reader's Digest. To learn more about Hollywood 360 or to contact us, visit our website at hollywood360radio.com. Adam West speaking. 